Just ahead on Black Issues Forum, North Carolina leaders get the ball rolling on helping people and businesses impacted by the pandemic. Plus, some of the state's top prosecutors reveal the results of a multi-month study of our criminal justice system. We're breaking it all down next. Welcome to Black Issues Forum. I'm Deborah Holt Noel. More than a month after the deadly U.S. Capitol riots, the Senate is set to decide if former President Trump incited those involved. We want to jump right in and get reaction from our panel. Former Wake County Board of Commissioners Chair Jessica Holmes, Patrick Hanna with the North Carolina Legislative Black Caucus Corporate Roundtable, and Brett Chambers, a professor at North Carolina Central University. So glad to have all three of you with us. <clears throat> let's, let's look at this impeachment, regardless of which way it goes, what are you sort of taking away from these proceedings? And I, I want to start with you, uh, Brett. Well, one of the things I'm taking away is this is definitely Team A, Team B, uh, the red, the blue team, and that's the way it's going to be. The, uh, the Republicans are, seem to be afraid of, you know, offending their base and, their, and the folks that supported Trump. He still has a hold on the party, and the Democrats are going after, you know, the guy that they think that came after the Capitol. The part that a lot of people that I've talked to, both Republican and Democrat, they don't understand. They understand the politics part, but they don't understand why, how is it that you can let someone get away with an insurrection or inciting an insurrection that we can see and, and still say that you believe in the Constitution? So that's the part that a lot of people are wondering about. They understand the politics stuff. But the argument on uh, Trump's defense, it doesn't even have to do with that. It has to do with the constitutionality of this entire trial altogether. So, Jessica, as you think about, you know, what you're pulling away from that and whether it goes one way or the other, what, where's the value? I mean, some of the arguments being made are around the First Amendment. And does a president have First Amendment rights? Absolutely. That said, every first-year law student knows very well that a private citizen can't go into a movie theater and yell fire without consequence. In that same vein, a president can't incite an insurrection without consequence. Unfortunately, what we're seeing is partisan politics at its worst. It's important to note that both of North Carolina senators, Tom Tillis and Richard Burr, voted against the constitutionality of even moving forward with the trial. I don't, I'm not very optimistic about a conviction in the Senate. What I'm pulling from these proceedings is a lot of information and education about our Constitution. Patrick, what are you pulling? It's a good question, Deborah. I think we're in uncharted waters. I think, uh, to my colleague's point, we are looking at First Amendment rights from a standpoint of freedom of speech. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think the reality is uh, the former president is out of office. I think the American people are looking to turn the chapter toward uh, conversations around creating jobs. But as a matter of due process and as a matter of really holding uh, people, whether you're the president of the United States or uh, a citizen who works at the local convenience store, uh, this country was founded on the fundamental purpose of laws, of uh, due process, uh, and justice. And so it would be un. Uh, wise for the Congress to simply not do anything, uh, but at the end of the day, what are the results that you're going to achieve? But uh, it is a unique time in this country to see an impeachment trial for a president who's no longer in office. 
I kind of see the same situation in this impeachment trial that took place in the very first one. Uh, Brett, you know, you have a situation where the Democrats felt like they had no choice but to proceed forward, regardless of the outcome. Yeah, that was a chess match. They were put in a position where they had to um, do something. Nancy Pelosi had repeatedly said she did not want to impeach the president. She found it was a distraction. But when the Ukrainian information was, was uncovered, they were put in a position where they had to impeach the president. She had to go forward. Her caucus, you know, her, her people, her, her base, you had, to su you had to support what they were feeling. And they, had, they were put into a situation where they had to go, go after the president. Um, she knew that that, that was going to be a challenge, but she had to do it. Uh, the Republicans knew that uh, they weren't going to impeach him um, the, in the Senate. So this, this is a chess game that it, right now the American public is, are the losers. Well, it is chess for sure. Um, but we'll see who wins and who loses. Before that trial got started, President Biden expressed hope that it would not distract Congress from his COVID relief package. Among the groups in need of that assistance are small businesses, black-owned businesses in particular. During the last round of relief loans, only 57% of these businesses ever applied for the available funds, and 70% of them were turned down. Patrick, can you share with us why didn't they even apply and how do you explain these numbers? Yeah, it's an excellent point. You know, one of the things that is often overlooked is that in order to do business, uh, you have to have relationships. And a lot of our businesses uh, don't have these relationships with some of these banks, but also a lot of our uh, small businesses are non-employee-based businesses. So you have sole practitioners, sole proprietors that uh, don't have employees. And part of the requirement uh, to the CARES Act under the P3 plan was you had to have a payroll in the previous year in order to qualify for the loan. And if you did not have a payroll in the previous year, you were uneligible. I think that was a miss. Uh, from public policymakers, if the objective is to get capital to the companies that need them the most, uh, I think having to prove and validate that you had a payroll in the previous year is a challenge. As I said, most of our businesses are non-employee based. They have uh, sole uh, practices or they're sole proprietors. And so when you have a sole proprietor, uh, you, you usually maybe have subcontractors where you have people you work with. Mm -hmm. So part of the policy, I think, was uh, a missed opportunity. Uh, I also think that a lot of the banks that are required uh, to distribute these proceeds, uh, you have to have a banking relationship. Mm -hmm. And you had a 5,000 banks around the country uh, that distributed these proceeds and processed these loans. And, and another uh, fun fact is these banks also received 4% on each loan that they closed. And so I think that our small businesses uh, were left out. Uh, I think that we need to do a better job educating a small minority-owned businesses for, for these opportunities and making sure that the capital gets to the businesses that need them the most in our community. Well, Jessica, do you think that small businesses, black-owned small businesses, were re well represented and it's kind of coming out in this new plan? Uh, well, that's certainly the goal. Um, that has yet to be determined because it was a, a failure um, initially. And so many businesses that weren't, um, in terms of our view, small businesses ended up receiving millions of dollars. Um, and so, you know, communication is the key. Bureaucracy is one of the challenges. And in this new plan moving forward, Biden has made a commitment 
to ensure that the money goes to truly small businesses and businesses that um, aren't minority owned. So we'll see how that works out, but um, steps are being taken to get rid of some of the bureaucracy and the complications. And in terms of some people just not applying, some of that was just distrust of government. And they were right in a sense that even when they did apply, many minority-owned businesses were denied. So we'll see if the steps that the Biden administration is taking will rectify that situation. Well, that's the part that I think is key, is that 70% of those who did apply were denied. But, but going back to that percentage of those who didn't even apply, it almost makes it look as though they didn't try, even with the explanations, Patrick, that you provided. Brett, you know, when... Um, when people are looking at these statistics and making the decision about uh, moving forward, uh, you know, what, what, is, what do we take from that? What does it say about small black businesses and who's advocating for them? I think we go back to what Patrick just pointed out. Um, all businesses, uh, small and large, have to have a good relationship with whoever their financial institution is and understand uh, and, 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 try and work with those institutions to truly understand what does it take for them to get what they need to stay alive. And Patrick, you know, I want to talk a little bit about the restaurant and lodging uh, businesses. There are a lot of uh, African-American-owned uh, businesses and a lot of African-American workers in uh, hotels, lodging, and restaurants. How were they, they missed out, and are they going to get some coverage this next round? Yeah, it's, it's also another uh, missed opportunity, and uh, it's unfortunate we continue to, to come up short. That's just one of the things we continue to fight in this whole economic prosperity movement. Uh, but the hospitality and tourism industry has been turned upside down. When you look at almost a 20% unemployment rate, uh, at one time, the majority of those unemployed were people that came from our community. And so I think the broader question from the standpoint of access to capital for small businesses, DBEs, MWBs, all these wonderful, this alphabet soup of designations that we hear in the in the lexicon of doing business, we really need to, as you recognize, is talk about uh, wages and making sure that uh, people have a living wage in this country so that they can provide for their families. The corporate roundtable represents over 105 companies. NBCSL has over uh, 700 legislators. They represent 70 million constituents across the country. And I can tell you that legislators around the country are very interested in making sure uh, that their constituents have a living wage uh, in addition to making sure small businesses have the access to capital and have a level playing field. Well, speaking of that living wage, Jessica, if we look at the real purpose of the COVID relief package and the fact that there is a request to increase the minimum wage to $15 an hour, it, that certainly might get at the wealth gap. But is it serving the purpose of you know, providing relief? Is it really necessary to have in this, in this particular bill? Um. I'm not sure that the increase in the minimum wage to $15 will actually end up in this stimulus bill. It would not surprise me at all if it was ended up removed from this stimulus bill and put forward as a standalone bill or attached to some future bill. That said, I very much absolutely support an increase to the minimum wage. We all know that there is nowhere in this country that someone can work 40 hours a week and make minimum wage, which is $7.25 an hour and essentially be able to afford affordable housing. This lends into our affordable housing crisis. This is why so many Americans are um, receiving other types of government subsidies from food stamps to assistance with um, 
rental income with assistance with evictions. Um, so much of our sort of welfare system isn't necessarily people who are lazy or people who don't work. That is a very popular misconception that until we pay folks a living wage, we're going to continue to see increases in poverty. Whereas right now we've got almost epic unemployment, but yet some of the richest people in this country, their wealth has actually increased during this pandemic. For example, the CEO of Amazon. So I absolutely support an increase to the minimum wage. Um, $15 an hour, the reality, that is not a living wage everywhere in this country. Um, so for me, that is a starting place. I'm also very concerned about the reality that we're phasing in the $15 an hour requirement. That said, we have been at $7.25 for far too many years. And it certainly has not kept up with the cost of living. So not only am I concerned about you know, the reality of actually getting it through this stimulus bill, but I'm also concerned about how even the Democrats seem to be moving forward with a phased-in approach. Because Americans need assistance, and they deserve fair wages right now. Well, Patrick, one of the arguments out there is that if minimum wage is raised to $15 an hour, that could hurt people who are currently employed. It could cause the loss of jobs. How, how is this? Yeah, it's, it's a good question, and it's a balancing test, I think, that all companies face when you're trying to manage your payroll, whether you're a small business or you're a large corporation. You don't want to shop the balance sheet or the payroll and have a knee-jerk reaction. And so if there was not a glad path to increasing the minimum wage, uh, you could potentially see uh, significant unemployment uh, increase from a certain demographic or in particular certain particular markets. So I think part of the economic balance that economists would tell you is that you want to gradually change the market. And I think that regardless of the fact, it, it's got to be done. Uh, and I think that the good news is we're, I think we're moving in that direction to my colleague's point. You know, the minimum rate wage hasn't been increased since 2009. Uh, and I think it went from 655 to 725. So you just think about that. You hadn't had a raise in 12 years. And so the American people are ready for a raise. Uh, but I think we need to do it in a smart way that allows it to, that, that, that it allows it to, uh, to generate uh, the type of reaction and the type of results in particular that our community needs, which is full employment and fair compensation. Fair compensation for sure. I follow up by noting that I reject the narrative that increasing the minimum wage necessarily has to result in an increase in the cost of goods, increase in the cost of consumer goods. When we look at the distribution of profits within companies, if those profits were better shared amongst the minimum wage workers versus the CEO and everyone in between, they wouldn't necessarily have to result in the additional cost being passed on to the consumer. Why is that? How else could it, how, how else could it lay out? If those profits within the company, for example, you have these CEOs making millions of dollars each year, getting you know benefits like private planes and um, you know multi-million dollar you know rental housing and, and so on. So if we were more conscious of the wages in terms of the wage gap between the lowest paid employees and the highest paid employees, and better distribute the profits amongst all of the workers of a corporation, for example, that would be one way to avoid having to necessarily pass those costs on directly to the consumer. Brett, I'd be interested in your feedback on this because you, you, there's a need for people to have a living wage. And then there's the go slow approach. And is the time 
proper right now to go slow on something like this? Well, there's a there's a number. Of, one of the things is there's a number of different sectors and different problems that we're all kind of bundling together, because the 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 whole idea that if we bump it up from 7.25 to 15 dollars an hour, that's going to cause a shock to the balance sheets. For some companies, that is definitely true. Um, the fact that uh, the, 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 the upper part of the, the company, especially the executives are going to get, they're making all this money. That is also true. But then that's the structural part. I mean, that's the structural challenge because the whole idea is, in, especially in the larger businesses, the money has to be, has to, they have to be concerned with their shareholders. And the money has to be distributed a certain way according to their bylaws within their shareholders, to their shareholders. So, the goal for the business is to maximize profit, period. And how they distribute it is how they determine where they're going to send it. So this, this is where the, the challenge becomes. Is the, is, it's not just balancing what happens if we raise $15. It's the mindset of some of the, the, the executives. And there are companies who have proven that they can raise their minimum wage and redistribute their, their executive compensation, and everybody wins. And they saved money on the other side because they have higher employee retention. They have better customer satisfaction because their, custom, their, their employees feel more um, valued and they have more money in their pockets. Right. So, right. so, I mean, those are the things that I think that we also need to talk about. Thank you, Brett. Well, moving on, Governor Cooper recently signed his first bill of the new session, a $2.2 billion COVID relief bill, and that federal money will address schools, vaccines, and rental assistance, among other things. Let me open up with you, Jessica. What's in this for schools as they reopen? This is a big concern. We know that there was an announcement and urging to reopen schools as soon as um, next week. And then following that was uh, a conversation about providing, uh, moving teachers up in the, in the vaccination line, but, but not really. So <laughs> <laughs> what, what's in this COVID relief bill for schools as they reopen? Well, first, I'll start. There's an obvious tension between the legislature and the, gov and the governor. Um, the governor, as he mentioned last week in a press conference, certainly encouraged um, schools to offer in-person learning, but stopped short of making it mandatory. Right now, going through the Senate, um, which has already been voted on by the Senate and passed by the House, is Senate Bill 37, uh, which largely moved forward along party lines. Um, some Democrats did vote along with Republicans. And this bill essentially mandates the opening of schools all across our state. Um, this is a challenge in many counties for several reasons. For example, um, here in Wake County, um, our state's largest school district in terms of number of students enrolled, it will be very difficult to ensure social distancing in some of our classrooms simply due to the number of students in those classrooms. In terms of the governor moving teachers up to group three, so teachers and school employees will be among the first essential employees to be eligible to get the vaccine starting on February 24th. And then after that, the next phase of essential workers, for example, grocery store employees, police officers, uh, will be eligible as of March 10th. Um, this is a concern um, for many reasons, and it's causing a lot of uh, um, a lot of fuss across the state because some people feel like 
why not just wait until all educators and school employees have the opportunity to be vaccinated before forcing in-person learning? And also there's a tension amongst people like grocery store workers and police officers who have essentially been put behind um, educators politically. Well, let me get your... They, they haven't been able to, you know, Mm -hmm. work virtually. Yeah, I want to I get you in on this as well, Patrick, uh, because uh, Jessica makes a good point. Um, the schools are, are, the, are near and dear to us as well as the teachers, and we want to make sure that they're opening safely. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It is a big challenge. But let me just say this. As a parent, uh, you have no idea how, how challenging it's been trying to provide uh, a quality life, safety for your kids, keeping them fed, educating them, and working. It's just an enormous drain on, on, uh, on all of our families, in particular single parents, a single mom working two jobs trying to provide for their children during COVID. Uh, it's just it's a crisis that our Black community is facing. So I think that we need to recognize, we've always known that our teachers are fundamentally important to our society. Uh, there's no better awareness now than how we realize how we need to pay our teachers more, how important it is for them to provide a high-quality education for our children. But the psychological aspect of what this is doing for the Black community is at DEFCON 3. And so part of the narrative is not just whether or not teachers should be vaccinated. Of course, they should be vaccinated, but we also need to recognize and use good judgment of what this is doing to families. And so part of this relief is making sure that we look at rural North Carolina and the distribution channel to get the vaccination to the rural part of the state. There are over 10 million people in this state. We need to make sure that our community has the resources to distribute the vaccination to our community. And the quicker we do that, the quicker we're going to be able to get back to some sense of normalcy. But the black community is hurting in this space, and particularly in this early childhood and early child care environment that we're having to live in. Patrick, Jessica, Brett, thank you so much. A group of district attorneys from around the state are highlighting ways to make North Carolina's criminal justice system more fair. After months of study, the eight DAs are calling for both short and long-term changes. Joining us now to discuss this are Kerwin Pittman, the founder of REPS, a nonprofit working to help people who've been incarcerated from going back, and Dean Paul Stevens, a writer and journalist who covers matters of racial justice for several publications. Welcome to both of you. So, Dean, can you share with us a little bit from the report, some of the highlights? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, as far as the report is concerned, um, a lot of the uh, points that they made sure to put in the report itself, uh, it runs the gamut from uh, increased uh, bias training uh, for prosecutors and um, uh, other justice and allied professionals. Um, increased data collection um, on the actual uh, cases themselves, um, a study to, um, I guess, gauge the quality of uh, representation, uh, particularly for um, indigent, um, uh, uh, indigent, um, what's what I'm looking for? Indigent um, communities and so uh, forth. You know, what it sounds yeah. like to me is that this is a report that just highlights and reports on things that we already knew. Kerwin, is, does this introduce new information? Do you think that this is significant based on what you've read and learned? Um, based on working with um, the Task Force to Combat Racial Inequities in the Criminal Justice System, um, this is kind of 
I'm running a meal, but it is great to see that the the conference of district attorneys actually came out with recommendations like other associations such as the chief and the sheriff's association. Um, but I would like to see quick uh, um, change, so to speak, to tackle the low-hanging fruit, but also low, long-term um, goals implemented with these recommendations as well. But it is a great start. Well, Dean, you cover racial justice and, uh, you know, share with our audience the, the community that you cover and where you see the value of this report, you know, coming in. Is this something fresh and new? Is this really going to kind of move the mark on racial justice, in your opinion? Particularly in the area that I cover, uh, mostly on uh, the Piedmont area within North Carolina and North Carolina um, as a whole. Um, there are definitely many, many, many people that are currently going through the legal system that uh, would have benefited uh, greatly from some of these um, uh, some of these policy prescriptions being um, uh, put in place uh, years ago. That's well. Well, Dean is right, uh, Kerwin. People have been uh, agitating so to speak, for racial justice for a very long time. And then I think it might be unique that <clears throat> these DAs came together. Uh, will this report inform the work that you're doing with the governor's group? Uh, so this report kind of just highlights some of the work that we're doing um, on the governor's task force. Um, and so we actually look at different disparities within the courtroom um, actors as well as the magistrate as well as law enforcement first interface with uh, individuals in the community. And it is bias, biases that is playing at every point um, and checkpoint in these type of interfaces um, from them being stopped initially by law enforcement to going before the magistrate to getting sentenced by a judge. And so for the district attorney to speak up and out about this and say, hey, you know, we recognize these biases, I think it is a great step and just reinforce um, the work that we're all trying to do collectively. Well, so what's next? I mean, we, we've had the reports, people are on board. It seems as though people, things are moving forward. What would be significant? What would be really, you know, a sign to you that, hey, things are going to change? Significant change will be uh, implementation phase. And so um, on the task force that I'm on, we're kind of on the implementation phase and kind of going to tackle the low-hanging fruit um, to address these disparities, but as well as to start um, seeing swift policy change within local departments across um, the state of North Carolina, not just um, honing in on particular areas, but across the whole broad state of North Carolina and, and seeing these implemented through and through the, for the low-hanging fruit. Absolutely. Well, Kerwin, Pitt, Kerwin Pittman and Dean Paul Stevens, thank you so much for being here. We also want to thank Jessica Holmes, Patrick Hanna, and Brett Chambers, who were with us a little bit earlier. If you want to reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram, just use the hashtag NCBlackIssues. You can also find our other episodes on pbsnc.org slash blackissuesforum. I'm Deborah Holt-Noel. Thank you for watching. <laughs>